I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced by Policy Forum Net at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Now, as you're sitting around in lockdown or just coming out of lockdown, you might be considering upskilling or maybe changing into a policy profession. Perhaps after listening to the pod, you're desperate to move into a policy profession. If so, we've got something really exciting on offer. Crawford now has a new graduate certificate of environmental management, and it's online. Reduced rates are available for some whose work has been affected by COVID-19. It's an opportunity to learn more about disaster management, food security, ecotourism, environmental policy, and much, much more. Why don't you check it out at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. This week, it's National Reconciliation Week, and it marks 20 years since the Reconciliation Walks of 2000. This year's theme is All in This Together, but the outcomes for Indigenous Australians in health, in education, in other crucial areas, tell a very different story. And it really doesn't seem like we're all in this together. Pandemic has shone a light on existing vulnerabilities of Indigenous communities. The Roadmap to Recovery report was written by eight leading Australian universities. One of the authors of that report, Professor Megan Davis from UNSW, has said the coronavirus has emphasised the limits that current political structures place on community autonomy in Indigenous communities. Health inequality between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians persists in terms of life expectancy and many, many other indicators. The most recent Closing the Gap report paints a devastating picture of preventable deaths, failure to listen and policy inaction. So, our question for today is are we really all in this together? And how can policymakers work with Indigenous communities to get better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, both during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond? To talk through some of these issues, we have two fantastic guests today. Dr Virginia Marshall is a Wiradjuri Nyamba woman from New South Wales. She's an inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance, or REGNET, and she's also at the Fenner School of Environment and Society. Virginia, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. Hi, Yuradu Marang. Welcome. Thanks, Virginia. It's lovely to have you here. And we also have Professor Tony Dreis. Tony is a descendant of the Glimmeroy and Ualia people from the northwest part of New South Wales and southeast Queensland. And Tony is joining us from beautiful Queensland today. So he's in the warmth while we're here in the Canberra cold. <laughs> Tony is head of the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. He's recognised here in Australia and internationally as a First Nations leader in policy, evaluation and research in the field of education. Tony, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you. So we're here in Reconciliation Week. The Closing the Gap initiative has been in place since 2008, and since then only two of the seven targets are on track, according to the 2020 Progress Report. Uh, Those are the targets around early childhood education and around Year 12 equivalents. And the report highlights the impact of this failure on Indigenous Australians, and I just wanted to quote a little bit from that report. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are not deficits or statistics. 
these just hide the truth of our lived realities. For us, the harrowing failure to close the gap is felt through sorry business, the countless funerals of family and friends, the hospital visits, the coronial inquiries that we continue to painfully endure. They are incredibly powerful and incredibly confronting words. The theme for this year's Reconciliation Week is We're All in This Together. And I guess my first question, um, perhaps for you, Tony, is if we really are all in this together, would outcomes for Indigenous peoples be so poor? One could argue that clearly we're not all in this together, not at this point. Um, We know one thing. We know that it will take a national effort turn around current disparities. Um, What we need to simultaneously happen is greater uh, respect for Indigenous leadership, but equally all Australians putting the shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, in terms of turning around um, these gaps. I suppose one of the unfortunate, whether intended or unintended, consequences of framing Indigenous policy in terms of closing the gap is that it automatically lends itself probably to a deficit discourse, um, which I've always found problematic. Um, There's no question that improving things such as child mortality rates or employment outcomes for our people vitally important, but the whole framing of of the uh, flagship of Indigenous policy around a closing the gap kind of approach, I think, has been um, problematic. What we ought to do is switch to a strengths-based, asset-based narrative where First Nations aspirations are actually resourced. There has, if you look over the last year, there's been, I think, a different kind of policy and political discourse emerging. My minister appears to be respecting the fact that First Nations uh, voices and leadership need to take in, need to be closer, I think, to the point of decision-making. So you've seen kind of COAG reforms um, embrace uh, indigenous governance mechanisms, uh, incredibly important that occurs right through policy and service delivery and program design circles. At the moment, there's just too much marginalisation of First Nation voices. Tony, you made that incredibly important comment about moving away from a deficit approach. Mm. And indeed, the 2020 report says, frankly, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not deficits. And as you pointed out, we need to shift that. We need to start thinking about building from strengths and strengths of tens of thousands of years of culture. Mm. How do we start to make that shift so that we are collectively within this country working from a strengths-based approach? At all levels, and it's got to start with at a national leadership level, there needs to be quite a seismic cultural shift in Australia. Australia is being very good at marginalising Indigenous voice. You just look at that over the course of 200-odd years. Um, That's got to change. So understandably, you've had First Nations uh, groups such as those involved in the development of the Uluru Statement talk about a number of things that need to happen at the national level, be that a, a process of truth-telling. Um, personally, I believe that's where we've got to start. We, we're not telling the truth in this country. We're not teaching it to our children and we're not recognising that there is a story out there that's Kind of been silenced and way back to Bill Stenner in the 1960s, he was talking about the Great Australian Silence. Now, arguably, um, still there in too many parts. So, you've got obviously a push towards a voice. We don't know what form that voice takes. That 
um, is still subject to ongoing conversations and I dare say debate. But clearly what needs to emerge at a point in time um, is a voice. Personally, I hope that is constitutionally enshrined and is to the parliament, not just to the executive government, because there's a key difference there. What's tended to happen is First Nations governance mechanisms at a national level have been too um, easily dispensed with, and so some sort of constitutional enshrinement to me makes sense. So there's truth-telling, there's voice, and then thirdly, I would suggest we still don't have a proportionate policy and program response to First Nations needs. Um, there is still significant underinvestment in areas that we can't afford to have. And some of some of the gaps as they currently are, let's take employment, and I know that we're going to come to a conversation about COVID, but when you look at the economic impact of COVID, um, it's likely to worsen Indigenous employment outcomes. I'll expand upon that a little later. But the, the, the final point I'm making there is about getting a proportionate response to Indigenous need and aspirations. Virginia, we hear a lot about the statistics and those statistics are pretty awful. But I wonder if we are going to move away from this deficit approach, if it's time that we focus less on statistics and more on human rights. What's your thinking on that? Well, I think I'd like to pick up from where uh, Tony was actually talking about with closing the gap. The most important thing to remember in truth-telling is really to, to look at uh, the history of closing the gap. And the Auditor-General's report, 2018-2019, uh, which was on the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and the Productivity Commission, um, really saw some uh, serious defects in the way that the closing the gap framework has been um, implemented. Uh, and let's not forget that it was only because of the advocacy of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people uh, who sought human rights uh, change uh, and wanted uh, the uh, importance of how Aboriginal health and Torres Strait Islander health was being received and was being dealt with by Australian society in general. So we have to look at those issues that the Closing the Gap uh, report and the Closing the Gap framework um, has failed in many respects because it has had uh, a number of the oversight um, bodies uh, dismantled and that's caused an immense problem with its implementation. We know as Indigenous people that uh, many of those targets haven't been met. And also uh, when you're looking at uh, the National Indigenous Reform Agreement, which underpins the closing the gap, that the Auditor-General had said that on many fronts um, it was uh, limited in its effect and in also in its governance arrangements, in its implementation, its reporting and its evaluation. So you can understand that the outcome was only going to be partially effective. And that means that for Aboriginal health and Torres Strait Islander health, that, ha that has serious consequences. And that means targets aren't met. There's no objective assessments of that performance. There's, there's as I said, disillusion of the oversight bodies. and in the main, it means Aboriginal people's health and Torres Strait Islander people's health is suffering. So that is at the centre of what we must discuss as human rights issues. Um, if the Social Justice Commissioner of the time and many of the other um, Aboriginal organisations and bodies hadn't advocated, like we must now, advocate for serious change, and I think one of those changes as a human rights lawyer too would be to take Indigenous affairs out of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Um, that would be a start and also to bring back oversight. And as Tony's outlined, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to really be at the forefront of running um, any sort of program such as Closing the Gap. Virginia, you, you mentioned um, the Indigenous Affairs portfolio and 
Um, of course, Ken Wyatt has now been Minister of, for Indigenous Affairs for over a year. Um, Tony, what difference is it making to have an Indigenous minister looking after that portfolio? I recall my conversation with you and Martin last year when Ken was first appointed and um, a couple of the points I made then I would repeat now. I think in terms of signalling and symbolism and, you know, a long overdue in the Westminster system, a long overdue appointment of a First Nations person to head the First Nations portfolio I think it is and remains a very good thing. I also made the point when we spoke uh, shortly after Ken's appointment, I made the point that his success is going to rely on the support he receives from colleagues within his government, um, principally the Prime Minister, the Treasurer and other leading figures. And it, it, it was concerning that very early on when the Minister, you know, made some commitments to referendum uh, and recognition early on for then key colleagues to um, run counter-narratives, counter-messages. And so for that to have occurred early on, I found quite concerning. What's vitally important, whether we're talking about recognition of rights um, and not to overlook the fact that Australia is a signatory to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, so whilst we've signed up to it, this country still doesn't have the mechanisms to enforce it, which is disappointing. Um, and whilst rights are being denied, then you're not going to see gaps closed. But, but coming back to uh, the minister, I think his success or otherwise will clearly be determined by um, the the the. Cabinet and his caucus um, getting in behind him and backing him um, to make the long overdue reforms um, uh, that need to be made. Virginia, what kinds of mechanisms of accountability do we need to have in place to ensure that Australia meets, as Tony said, international commitments, but perhaps more importantly, the commitments through the Closing the Gap and other initiatives to all Australians and particularly to Indigenous Australians? Well, I think the system's broken right now. And we've really been through a whole range of um, different issues. We've had expert panels talk about constitutional change. Um, that's been pretty much a failure and a failure to connect with many Australians um, as well as Indigenous people. Uh, we've also had success and failure with Uluru, a statement from the heart, um, with a, a disconnect uh, happening between uh, Indigenous leaders and people supporting the Uluru statement to that of um, representative government. Uh, we've also briefly had discussions about treaty, uh, where Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister refused to have any treaty discussions, as did a, a whole range of leaders. and. We've certainly looked at other issues uh, for human rights. As Tony mentioned, we've got the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but Australia signed on to that with reservation. So um, that means that they didn't support it entirely. Um, and as we've seen in British Columbia, Canada, they've supported Bill 41 and now uh, legislated uh, to be compatible with uh, the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous People. So they have a statute uh, which they must compare their own um, bills and their laws with uh, that it meets uh, those standards. So it's not the highest bar which would be to give effect to, which means they would have to apply uh, all of those uh, articles from the Declaration but it's certainly an advance to where Australia is at the moment. I don't think there's any stomach uh, for um, listening to Indigenous people seriously. 
Uh, and I think that I, I, I can only be heartened by the um, meetings and especially the conversations we had during a Bill of Rights and, and how that should um, be formed. I was a, uh, a member of the Human Rights Committee for the New South Wales Law Society and we'd had many discussions uh, many times over. We'd heard the huge effort that went into having national discussions about whether there should be a Bill of Rights and what that should look like. And, and I really believe, like uh, many other practising uh, lawyers across the country, that we need to seriously have um, those human rights uh, in some form or another, certainly a Bill of Rights or um, something similar would be really important at this time because, uh, as we, we see, there's been a water emergency recently. We've had severe drought. Australia is, is one of those countries that suffers from severe drought but because of their, there being so many more um, users of water and extraction for mining, etc. It means that um, Aboriginal people are always the last people on the list. And with that water emergency, we can see that even human rights uh, as uh, goes to water use, water access, um, the human rights element isn't in the water legislation. Um, there's no ethics involved in thinking about water or taking that seriously. So we can see it through this whole um, idea of, you know, how should we go forward? Um, we really need to come back to not only Aboriginal laws and customs and practices, which are um, really the core of everything that an, uh, Aboriginal peoples understand from culture, but we also need to then lean on uh, human rights um, legislation to really bring us up to what the expectations are internationally. And I think we've forgotten this. Um, very much so now uh, where we've been confronted with COVID-19. Um, it's certainly uh, a lesser uh, uh, and less spoken subject matter, which is Indigenous health and, you know, how are Indigenous peoples faring? It doesn't seem to be uh, on the media in, in mainstream very often. Uh, we're certainly covering it in the Koori Mail and but we, we've certainly left, left that um, situation for Aboriginal peoples be moot. Tony, I'm, I'm wondering in, in all of this discussion, what role education has to play in this idea of closing the gap, but also um, around us all being in it together? Um, and I'm thinking here less about education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and more about what all young Australians are taught about Indigenous Australia, about Indigenous culture, about our, our collective history. Uh, it's vitally important. Education is vitally important in all kinds of ways. Societies with strong education systems generally fare better across a whole range of indicators, including health, including income, including employment, and on it goes. Now, if we're talking about closing the gap, there's one sizable gap we don't talk about, and that is the gap in wider society's understanding of and appreciation for First Nations groups and societies. And what we tend to do in Australia, without being too unkind, is I think the country does value Indigenous cultures. I don't think, however, that the country values enough Indigenous peoples. So whilst we're happy as a country to kind of embrace, be it Aboriginal art or music, etc., they are elements of our cultures, there's a readiness and preparedness to do that, as you can see on some of the campus planes, um, and that's not a recent advent. But what we're not doing enough is valuing Indigenous um, peoples, particularly in some parts of Australia. We do ignore too often the fact that First Nations people um, in lots of parts of this country continue to be burdened by uh, poverty. That poverty may well compound if we allow it to in the post-COVID era. Um, you've got to realise that uh, people went into COVID 
already at sizable risk and vulnerability. And in a, in a post-COVID sense, particularly where it comes to economic decisions going forward, um, there has to be, again, as I said earlier, proportionate response in terms of ensuring that incomes, um, livelihoods, um, employment situation are all improving because unless those things are improving, then those other markers are unlikely to improve. But come back to my point about closing the gap. There is a gap within Australia and it doesn't have to do, it's, it's not the responsibility of First Nations people and that is the gap in terms of truth and an appreciation of um, First Nations people and our current circumstances. The CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation said recently when um, the, the 2020 Closing the Gap report was released that people begin to believe that meaningful progress is impossible and there is nothing governments can do to improve the lives of our people. In the context of this discussion that we've been having of, in the context of ongoing policy failure, I'd like to hear what, what for each of you National Reconciliation Week means and, and what it means for Indigenous Australians. Um, Virginia, d- does this week have meaning for Indigenous peoples? Uh, I think certainly when we take it into um, context that Sorry Day was on the 26th of May, uh, National Sorry Day, which is that time to reflect on stolen generations and family trauma um, and those stories that bind us to a very human experience and tragedy of those eras. Um, I think that that is the most poignant moment um, of this week. Reconciliation um, is really uh, a very difficult um, concept when there are so many things such as Tony's mentioned and I'm certainly supportive of, which is telling um, our stories and letting those stories be heard about what happened to our communities on country. Um, There are so many uh, stories out there that haven't been shared by people who did take over Uh, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people's land and waters. There are so many hidden stories out there that we need to have something similar to um, South Africa in that truth-telling story uh, that needs to be um, understood and heard. So I think that, you know, that is a very important part of this week. But, you know, some people might say it's time to celebrate the referendum in 1967 Well, you know, yes, many people um, overwhelmingly voted for Aboriginal people uh, to have uh, the vote, but when you look at that uh, issue in 1967, there were so many other issues that weren't dealt with. Um, And, again, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were in um, uh, total disadvantage, destitute. Um, And then we came into an elation of Mabo, in 1992, where, you know, first of all, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people could celebrate that our lands and waters weren't all extinguished, um, that we do have that special relationship to the land and waters, to this country, um, for over 80,000 years. But then again, we've seen WIC um, that came in in 1996, the High Court decision in WIC, where the WIC peoples uh, were found to have coexisted and continued to coexist with pastoral leases. Um, And then you had a federal government that um, changed uh, all of those um, outcomes to negative outcomes and certainty only for a small um, group of stakeholders who weren't Indigenous. So there's there's highlights and there's lowlights. And I think that, you know, it's it's sort of... um, in one way, Reconciliation Week um, is celebrated with those people who are already converted, um, but to also change the way people think about Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, to um, to deal with that is more than just education. 
you know, under the United Nations um, articles, it says the right to an education, but it's a minimum right. Um, so it's a very low bar. It's not saying you have the right to be educated at a private school and you have the right to the best pastoral care and the best support during your exams um, and that you can board and and also um, have that pastoral care. So that's that's what really that minimum right talks about. Um, it's not a right to an excellent education or an outstanding education. It's a minimum right. And I think that's what we have to be careful of when we, we talk about um, many uh, areas of human rights and, and the articles that are involved in uh, many of the conventions. It gives you that minimum and there were um, reasons for that. However, what we've got to do is look at um, how we really want to make positive change uh, in, the, in the future, tomorrow, the next day. Um, are we going to be concerned to hear about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people faring um, with COVID-19 and, and the repercussions of a second or third wave? Um, Ab Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are underemployed, um, are surviving on very low um, incomes through Centrelink benefits. They're being managed and quarantined through the basic cards and income management. And uh, apparently there's a five months wait to get off income management. So there are so many issues and I just would like um, to make sure that the media is not distracting us away from serious serious health issues for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I think that's what um, this week means for me personally. And, Tony, for you, what, what does National Reconciliation Week mean? The theme's appropriate. Um, it, it, it's taken on, a, I think, a new and deeper meaning in this together in a way they probably didn't. Uh, those who designed that um, that slogan probably didn't envisage that we'd be here. Here we are in National Reconciliation Week in a COVID-19 environment. But when we look at COVID and its impact on First Nations people, there's both good and bad news. In an immediate sense, the good news is the number of cases uh, impacting Indigenous people quite low, which is encouraging. Uh, according to data I have, there are 55, uh, 59, I beg your pardon, uh, notified COVID-19 cases amongst people. Now, that's 59 too many, of course, but it could have been a lot worse. And I'm not saying we're out of the woods yet, you know, when we can the, the possibility of second, third or ongoing waves. But nonetheless, um, in terms of COVID cases, our people fortunately um, make up just 0.8% of all cases. So that's much lower than our population of share of 3.3. Um, and I think one of the, you know, a, a major reason for that quite encouraging um, outcome has been the um, support for and respect for uh, Indigenous leadership, which we talked about earlier. So, you know, if you look at Nacho, um, he's the National Aboriginal Health Organisation, it and other bodies were brought to the table along with government to make some very early calls in terms of fashioning a response to COVID. And that call tended to be quite respectful of um, some aspects of self-determination amongst First Nations. For example, to be able to make a call about um, permits and what are non-essential permits and then just denying outsiders access to remote communities. Um, and that, you know, that has cushioned and, and protected uh, many First Nations communities. Um, so that's a good thing. And the fact that Nacho and other First Nations bodies and the Commonwealth Department of Health collaborated early um, shows that, you know, 
policy can be done right. Policy can be effective where First Nations people and our leadership are brought to the table. Now, whilst on the health side of things, there are some there there are encouragement uh, encouraging uh, outcomes to date. Um, when you look to downstream likely impacts, then we start. Then we ought to be very, very worried. And that is our economic circumstance was really poor to start with pre-COVID, and is likely to compound unless we have adequate policy responses. So, for example, we know that a disproportionately high number of our people, particularly our young people, are on New Start, and therefore the recent boost to um, parenting payments, uh, youth allowances, New Start, Job Seeker, etc., has is likely to be disproportionately um, positive for our people in terms of our being, of course, the poorest part of the population. And when you look at um, um, some data, and I'd actually refer you to a, um, a, a paper, paper, a topical issues paper that uh, my colleagues in CAPER have put together looking at Indigenous people and COVID, and we've actually just referred it on to the um, Senate Select Committee on COVID. We point out that um, in an economic sense, you know, um, a lot of Aboriginal people, particularly young people, likely to pay the price of job losses um, in a way um, that is disproportionately harmful. So generally speaking, our people are younger, we have fewer, fewer qualifications, we're more likely to be casually employed. We're more likely to be subject to racism. Um, we're more likely to be last hired, first fired. Um, we're li more likely to be subject to what economists call scarring. That is that, you know, um, when you're unemployed for significant periods, um, it's very difficult to get a foot back into the labour market. Um and so when you look at, for example, the cohort of Indigenous young people in the year 2020, they may well be paying a price in terms of their employment prospects for many years to come. So as Virginia touched on, then we've got um, policies that are seemingly um, discriminatory toward our people, such as um, cashless debit fact that CDP program has not delivered. Um, it's actually high cost and um, uh, generally speaking low outcomes for our people. So we need to invest more in education. We need to invest more um, in social uh, security payments to people. And we also need to be, um, over, the, over the coming years, investing quite sizably in um employment and employment transition programs for Indigenous Virginia, Tony mentioned there that one positive aspect of the response to COVID-19 has been that leaders from Nacho were at the table deciding on what responses should be. Um, do you think this is an indication of more consultation, more collaboration, more listening to Indigenous leaders in the future as we move out of COVID-19? Well, I think uh, if we're going to uh, discuss success, I think that's certainly an advance on the position for NACHO and they've played an, ex an extremely important part in Indigenous health across the country uh, and has been very undervalued by Western health um, systems here. And I think one positive, and it certainly is a positive, um, going back to the closing the gap audit uh, by the Auditor General, it shows uh, a system uh, that was never anticipated to be consulted with or engage Indigenous peoples. 
Uh, and even um, when we had subsequent targets not met uh, and the system was broken because of governments, um, no, uh, no hand was put forth to um, bring Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander in that tent. And I think that's the problem. We have these um, piecemeal uh, outcomes uh, and there there are lights, so there are positives, but we don't seem to have uh, mainstream come on board to even view Indigenous people as the rightful and recognised key stakeholders in Australia. And that needs to happen so there's uniformity, um, not only in the law, education, um, and just across civil society in general. And, and I think that Many times we go into meetings uh, and also in consultations or inquiries as the also ran. So I think that what we need to do is to ensure for all Australians to understand that we are a key stakeholder and should be invited. It shouldn't be whether we should invite Indigenous people, but they are the key stakeholders. And I've seen that so much in recent times in discussions with drought and water that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are the last people that we talk about, not only um, in writing academically, um, but also in mainstream media and in conversations um, between fellow Australians, that we don't really understand. It's not just farmers and irrigators, but Indigenous peoples across this country have always looked after water. They should have water entitlements. They should have fresh drinking water. Uh, many communities that I do community development work in and volunteer um, from year to year, it, drinking water is something that they don't have. Uh, they have contaminated water sources for a whole range of different reasons and simply uh, extracting water from one place and putting it in a plastic bottle um, is not the answer. While so many companies across the world are making so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars in that, extraction and sale of water. So, you know, we need to see that this needs to be dealt with uniformly across different policy levels, different parts of society, no, no matter what that is, uh, we need to be at the table as a key stakeholder. That's really important. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit more about the impact of COVID-19 on Indigenous communities um, and to think about what it means to be all in this together. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Listeners, welcome back. I'm still here with Virginia Marshall and Tony Dries. And before the break, we started to talk a little about COVID-19 and the effects on Indigenous communities, but also the way in which decisions have been made. Tony, I just wanted to go back a step and ask why it is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are so vulnerable to outbreaks like that of COVID-19. Um, as with any novel virus, people generally speaking, and, you know, I'm not a health expert, um, what we do know is that, generally speaking, people who have pre-existing health concerns are vulnerable. And when you look at the current state of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and the fact that people are more likely to 
have um, not only pre-existing health concerns, but are also likely to uh, people are more likely to have or experience a disability. Um, vulnerable across, for, for example, areas such as diabetes, um, respiratory issues, um, heart issues. So, if you're if you have a pre-existing health condition um, and a new virus strikes, then you are particularly vulnerable. Um, we know with COVID um, that COVID has been particularly, and this is international, not just in business, uh, here in Australia, but we also know COVID has a, is particularly um, harmful where it comes to older people. So when we see you know, communities asking for less visitors and, and indeed asking their own communities to be locked down, I'm particularly sure that one of the drivers for that is to ensure that our elders are not uh, put at risk. So Australia, however, has fared better in terms of COVID where it comes to Indigenous peoples when compared to other uh, jurisdictions. If you take, for example, in the United States, the Navajo Nation, uh, the, the Navajo people have um, experienced a higher per capita infection rate uh, than New York. Um, that is, they've experienced to date, um, according to various reports, 140 deaths uh, from a population of 170,000 people. And probably one of the reasons for that is that Australia was more effective in shutting down travel and shutting down travel early, including to remote parts of Australia. So that's a good thing. And I'll repeat an earlier point too, the fact that uh, Indigenous peak bodies, including land councils, were respected and sat and were at the early decision-making tables of government uh, through an advisory group, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advisory group on COVID-19, and that task force, I think, has and its work has um, is a is a is a is a asset and is a shining example of strength. Virginia, how does the experience of the pandemic in Indigenous communities differ from that in non-Indigenous communities? Well, I think that um, we've, we've really looked at Indigenous health um, from an ANU perspective in a really positive way and, and maybe this could also, over time, understand the impact to, uh, for a whole range of reasons with COVID-19. But the Mai Kuwayu uh, study, which is being um, uh, a wonderful operation of understanding uh, from a point of view how connection to culture affects health and well-being for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which uh, Associate Professor Ray Lovett is leading. I think that's going to be um, an insight uh, to understanding COVID. So that's certainly um, a welcome study by ANU. But I think more broadly in Australia, I think what we need to do is is to personally um, support uh, not only our families and friends, but uh, support Indigenous peoples where we are across the country. I think that's really um, initially the most important thing is to remember that we are a vulnerable population um, on a lot of fronts, but especially in, in relation to health. Um, as Tony said, you know, many Indigenous people have chronic health conditions and um, that's exacerbated by COVID-19, so pre-existing conditions. We have a very young population, but uh, with these restrictions and lockdowns, um, we can't forget mental health. Um, that's also a, a huge risk in uh, Indigenous communities across the country, being in lockdown, being unemployed, not being uh, able to be with friends, uh, not being able to um, go and, and be, participate with sport groups. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of lifestyle 
um, that really has been halted. And for young people across the country, especially Indigenous people in remote areas, um, they need access um, and that relationship to one another. And I've seen that um, in my conversations with um, community that I go and help um, in Western Australia is that, you know, many of the community people were just fussed out to make sure that they were safe. But that meant uh, also um, a breakdown with relationships with communities because they were bussed off so far away. It was for their own safety and the safety of the elders. But, you know, the, the impact of those situations can't be underestimated. It's, it's quite severe. And the repercussions, as people, uh, people realise, is going to be felt uh, in the long term. So even though if we have less people... Um, being diagnosed with COVID-19, we are certainly going to deal with the impact of employment and relationships and uh, the breakdown, the lockdowns, and, and we've got to really put our minds to people who are in um, the justice system, you know, being held in detention as young people, as wards of the state, uh, people who are, are in jail. Um, there's, a, there's a whole range of advocacy happening right now um, by a lot of academics and, and other organisations to really have governments think about this really carefully. You know, why are we putting um, uh, people in jail in Western Australia, for example, for fine default? You know, this with COVID-19 especially, wouldn't that be one way to actually think to repeal those laws, um, which uh, categorically impact on Aboriginal people in Western Australia, but they're fundamentally flawed and inhumane laws. So, you know, there are a whole range of um, issues that we really now should think about because of COVID-19, and life should uh, really be a, a reset, and I think this is the most important thing. But if we miss the opportunity to reset positively, um, then it, it is going to impact uh, across the nation. As we, we think about that reset and we look forward beyond COVID-19, should Australia be adopting something like an Indigenous impact statement that would go with every policy that governments consider across all portfolios to genuinely examine the impact on Indigenous people? Yes, I think I think it's important to have an Indigenous impact, but then we have to have follow-up. And we've seen that um, really uh, disconnect with the Closing the Gap report that we've talked about today. You know, if we just have an Indigenous impact, which we could, um, as a lawyer, you would say, have a, a victim uh, impact statement. Now, you know, those sort of things are optional, but certainly they play a very important part uh, for the, the magistrate to hear, you know, how you've personally been impacted by um, these um, uh, these crimes, for example. So, you know, what we're talking about, yes, it is fundamentally um, a positive thing to have an impact statement, but what are the processes then going to happen after that is heard? Uh, are we going to actually then step in? Are we going to have government step in and assist Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Um, is it only going to just be hearing the impact? Because that's what we're seeing with closing the gap. There have been so many missed opportunities, um, as, as I pointed out earlier, with uh, just disbanding the oversight committees, having limited effect across the board. And one of the failures with Closing the Gap was that um, uh, Closing the Gap is not included in the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. Um, so, you know, that was the big hurrah. The Indigenous Advancement Strategy was going to do a lot of great things for Indigenous peoples across the country. Uh, but again, uh, we weren't heard, we weren't participated with, we weren't consulted with. So. I would love to see those connections to an Indigenous statement um, and then or something of that nature. Uh, I think that's really important because otherwise we, we're just going to have uh, the knowledge of uh, the situation for Indigenous peoples, but we're not going to have change and positive change. Just in drawing this conversation to, to a close, and there is so much more that we could talk about now, but as we draw to a close, I wanted to return to the theme of Reconciliation Week this year, um, that aspiration of all being in this together. 
And I wonder what is the single most important thing that each of you think we need to do in order to move towards that aspiration of genuinely all being in this together? Um, Tony, what, what's the single thing that you think we need to do to make that happen? Uh, our preparedness and follow-up in speaking truth to one another. We, I reflected on Stenner earlier in terms of the Great Australian Solomon. So at a point in time in Australia, we kind of allowed the country to almost make, try make Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander invisible. We've got to, whilst invisibility may not be the challenge now in 2020, I think there is still the risk of First Nations people not being actively listening to. And we are going to be in all of this together and that requires mutual listening. And Virginia, from your point of view, what is the, 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 the single most important thing we need to do now to make sure we are all in this together? Well, I think the most important thing is we can, we can really look back uh, at the bridge walk, for example, and we can see that, you know, in 2000, more than 250,000 Australians walked across that Sydney Harbour Bridge to show support to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I would love to see that happen on a regular basis, you know, that we could have not a physical bridge walk, for example, but many Australians would just uh, see that it's just not possible to move forward without Indigenous peoples having the same standard of health, the same opportunities in employment, the same opportunities um, to work on country uh, and not be forced off country into towns uh, which are going to prove you know, very um, difficult and detrimental to their well-being, to their liam. You know, I think that's the most important thing that every Australian who isn't Indigenous needs to see that it's a value, it's it's significantly important for Indigenous Australians to be valued and in all and across all areas of life in civil society. I think um, unless you see the value, it's, it's a bit like um, unfinished business for women's pay. You know, we're still not valued at the same rate of pay as men. Um, well, this is something that we need to say. If you value us as human beings and as women, then it's not an issue to give um, women equal pay. Well, it's the same issue with Aboriginal Australia. Uh, you need to see the value in us that we have that true, uh, not only equality, but equity, and, and it needs to be an egalitarian society by looking at how we value each other. And we, then we can do that bridge walk together and, and that will be spectacular. Virginia Marshall and Tony Dryce, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your expertise and your wisdom. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. So, listeners, do stay in touch via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or via email podcast at policyforum.net. If you've got any questions, suggestions, or if you just want to have a chat with us, do make contact and really do think very seriously about joining the Policy Forum pod group on Facebook. There are lots of benefits to being part of this group. We've now got more than 500 engaged listeners, and our presenters are there as well. You get exclusive access to our Ask Policy Forum pod series. That's the pod where you can ask us absolutely anything you want to, and there'll be a new episode out soon, so now is the best time to join. The pod is available on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favourite series from. Leave us a review. We're keen to know what you think and how we can do things better. And don't forget to look for that fifth star. And so, for now, it's bye-bye from me.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.